Welcome back to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mia. As always, we really appreciate your support. We see you have some new listeners out there. And I really, really, really love to see new people following us on the various platforms. If you'd like to show us your support, please give us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to us on. Also, you can drop by our Patreon page. It is a Podbean Patreon page. The link will be down below and you can throw us a few bucks or I'll also have the link below to our Venmo page and you can give us a one-time donation. Those five-star reviews though really help us out. They help us get onto those recommended lists and they really help uh, grow our listeners. Now, this week we are going to look into the case of a out of control doctor and it is the case of a narcissistic doctor. A lot of people believe that all doctors are narcissists, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, unfortunately, narcissists are naturally inclined to gravitate towards professions which guarantee plentiful and continuous what people call narcissistic supply of praise. They seek to interact with people only from their position of authority, advantage, and perceived superiority. In this power position, they are able to elicit automatic admiration, adulation, and affirmation from their patients, or failing that, their fear and obedience. As compared to their non-narcissistic colleagues, narcissists in authority lack empathy and ethical standards. Thus, they are more prone to immorally, callously, and consistently abuse their position and patient's rights. Have you ever tried questioning a narcissistic doctor? They display tremendous confidence and presence, and with their walls covered with diplomas for best medical institutions, they will let you know in no uncertain terms that they are the experts and they know what is best. I've actually experienced something like this. I wouldn't necessarily call the doctor a narcissist, but I actually told my primary care physician for years that I had been diagnosed with something and she pretty much ignored me and never ever treated me for that. And actually just recently, um, for insurance purposes, I had to change doctors and the doctor immediately ran a test for this particular thing and there's just one test that confirms that you have it it's something called Hashimoto thyroiditis it is a thyroid autoimmune disorder and lo and behold I have it I was told I had it years ago and my primary care I don't know if she didn't believe me or what um, never ran a test to diagnose it never treated me for it and it caused several health issues for me um, issues with chronic fatigue with weight with um, just thyroid problems with all kinds of different issues that now that it's being addressed and treated appropriately um, it changes my quality of life drastically. So I've dealt with a doctor who doesn't listen to anything you have to say. And it is absolutely infuriating and frustrating. And they do talk to you and treat you like a child. So absolutely, it is infuriating. 
This is a very worrisome trait. Narcissists can be liars and exaggerators. They can misrepresent their credentials, knowledge, talents, skills, and achievements. A narcissistic doctor would rather let patients die than expose their ignorance. So many people are such are in such admiration of doctors that they can imagine their physician would do no wrong. But sometimes they do grave wrong. There have been too many misdiagnoses and mistakes made by narcissistic physicians due to their intense need to be right. Obviously, there are incorrect diagnoses and mistakes made by non-narcissistic doctors, which is what I think happened with mine. But in the case of the narcissistic physician, they will find a way not to be wrong at all costs. You misheard or you misunderstood. It was the nurse's fault or you must not remember me telling you it might be something else. A narcissist cannot and will not apologize or take responsibility. Christopher Dunch is a former neurosurgeon commit, who committed gross malpractice resulting in the death and maiming of several patients while working at hospi hospitals in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Dunch was accused of maiming four patients and killing two others. Dunch was born in Montana but spent most of his youth in Memphis, Tennessee. He is a graduate of ECS Evangelical Christian School in Cordova, a suburb of Memphis. He initially had ambitions of playing college football, but was unable to catch on at either Division II Millsaps College or Division I Colorado State University. By the time he returned to Memphis to attend Memphis State University, which is now the University of Memphis, he had exhausted his eligibility. He then set his sights on becoming a neurosurgeon. Dunch completed the MD-PhD program and the Neurosurgery Residency Program at the University of Tennessee Health Center and subsequently completed a spine fellowship as well. Around 2006 and 2007, Dunch began to become unhinged. According to Megan Kane, an ex-girlfriend of one of Dunch's friends, she saw him eat a blotter of LSD and take prescription painkillers on his birthday. She then also saw that he kept a pile of cocaine on his dresser in his home office. Kane also recalled a cocaine and LSD-fueled night of partying between her, her ex-boyfriend, and Dunch, where after the end of their all-nighter, she saw Dunch put on his lab coat and go to work. A doctor at the hospital where Dunch worked said that Dunch had been, see had been sent to an impaired physician program after he refused to take a drug test. Now, substance abuse within the medical field is not uncommon due to the ease of access to drugs. So quite often, doctors and nurses will refuse drug tests and as a precaution, they will send them to substance abuse programs specifically for doctors and nurses. They run a little different because they have to take into the account the fact that they have such easy access to drugs. Despite his refusal, Dunch was allowed to finish his residency. Dunch focused on his research for a while, but was recruited from Memphis to join the Minimally Invasive Spine Institute in North Dallas in the summer of 2011. After he arrived in town, he secured a deal with Baylor Regional Medical Center at Plano and was given surgical rights to the hospital. Dunch's first job as a practicing physician was at the Minimally Invasive Spine Institute in the affluent Dallas suburb of Plano, which hired him 
almost immediately. The hospital welcomed Dunch with a $600,000 advance. While no one from the practice agreed to be agreed to talk about Dunch, they said that they received several recommendations from supervisors from his medical school. So no one really wanted to talk about his performance while he was there. All they would say is they hired him because they received um, recommendations from his supervisors in the medical school. Uh, one person stated that Dunch was one of the best and smartest neurosurgeons that they ever trained and that he went to great lengths to make them very happy that they felt that his greatest weakness was that he took on way too many tasks for one person in 2010 uh, one of dunch supervisors faxed a recommendation for him to the baylor plano hospital checking off good and excellent in boxes asking about his skills and noting that he was extremely bright and possibly one of the hardest working people that he had ever met. A vascular surgeon who operated at Baylor Plano by the name of Dr. Randall Kirby said he met Dunch soon after he started working and found him to be an arrogant know-it-all. I would see him maybe once a week at the scrub sinks or in the doctor's lounge. Kirby seated, he said, he was among one of the giants here and he was gonna try and tell me over and over again how most of spine surgery in Dallas was being done inappropriately and he was gonna clean this town up. Dunch lasted only a few months at the Spine Institute, not because his patients had complications, but because of falling out with other doctors over whether he was fulfilling his obligations. One weekend in September of 2011, Kirby said that Dunch was supposed to be taking care of a patient. He went to Las Vegas instead. One of his partners, Dr. Michael Ramwali, was notified by the administration that the patient was had no one performing rounds on them. And then Dr. Ramwali then dismissed Dunch after that. Nonetheless, Dunch still had privileges at Baylor Plano, and on December 30th, he operated on a man named Lee Passmore. At the time, Passmore was an investigator at Collin County Medical Examiner's Office, just north of Dallas. He had undergone a successful back surgery once before, but the pain had returned. Passmore's pain specialist told him he didn't have a back surgeon to whom he routinely referred patients, but he'd gone to lunch recently with one who seemed like the kind of guy that knew what he was talking about. Vascular surgeon Mark Hoyle assisted in the operation. In later testimony, he said he watched an alarm as Dunch began to cut out a ligament around the spinal cord not typically disturbed in such procedures. Passmore started bleeding profusely, so much the operating field was submerged in a lake of blood. Dunch not only misplaced hardware in Passmore's spine, but he stripped the screw so it could not be moved. Oh my God. At one point, Hoyle said he either grabbed Dunch's scalpel or blocked the incision. He couldn't remember which one, but he had to do something to keep Dunch from continuing to cut into the man. Then Hoyle said that he left the operating room and vowed never to work with Dunch again. The next procedure Dunch operated on was Barry Morgeloff. His surgery, an anterior lumbar spinal fusion, took place on January 11, 2012. 
At the request of the head and neck surgeon, also on the case, the vascular surgeon assisting Dunch was Kirby. Kirby said it should have been a routine case. In the spectrum of what a neurosurgeon does for a living, doing an anterior lumbar fusion procedure is probably the easiest thing they do on a daily basis. But Dunch quickly got into trouble. Instead of using a scalpel, he tried to pull Morgoloff's problem disc out with a grabbing instrument that could damage the spine. Kirby said he argued with Dunch, even offering to take over, but Dunch insisted he knew what he was doing. Kirby left the room. Morgoloff awoke in excruciating pain. His previous surgeon testified at Dunch's trial that the procedure had left bone fragments in his spinal canal. The surgeon said he repaired what damage he could, but Morgoloff still walks with a cane. Scar tissue builds up, his pain will worsen, and his range of motion will decrease. One day, he will likely end up in a wheelchair. As time goes on, the scar tissue and everything is going to build up more and more and more. I'm going to lose more and more function until I have no function at all. After this interaction, he was ordered to take a drug test. He passed, but was suspended until he passed a psychological evaluation. Next was a procedure on Kelly Martin, who had a compressed nerve from falling off a ladder as she fetched Christmas decorations from her attic. During the surgery, records show Martin's blood pressure plummeted. As she regained consciousness after the surgery, the nurses tending to Martin testified she began to that she began to slap and claw at her legs, which had turned a splotchy and multicolor. She became so agitated the staff had to sedate her, and then she never woke up. An autopsy would later find that Dunch had cut a major vessel in her spinal cord, and with n hours, Martin bled to death. Baylor Plano began once again ordered Dunch to take a drug test. The first screening came back diluted with tap water, but the second, a few days later, came up clean. Hospital administrators also organized a comprehensive review of Dunch cases, after which they determined that his days were, his days were numbered him. But importantly, they did not fire him outright. Instead, he resigned. leaving on April 20th, 2012, with a lawyer negotiated letter saying, all areas of concern with regard to Christopher D. Dunch have been closed. As of this date, there have been no summary or administrative restrictions or suspension of Dunch's medical staff membership or clinical privileges during the time he has practiced at Baylor Regional Medical Center at Plano. Since Dunch's departure was technically voluntary, and his leave has been for less than 31 days, Baylor Plano was under no obligation to report him to the National Practitioner Data Bank. The data bank, which was established in 1990, tracks malpractice payouts and adverse actions taken against doctors, such as being fired, barred from Medicare, handed along suspension, or having license suspension or revoked. The information isn't available to the public or other doctors, but hospital administrators have access to the databank and are supposed to use it to make sure problem doctors 
can't shed their past by moving from state to state or hospital to hospital. Robert O'Shell, a patient safety advocate and former associate director of the data bank says that hospitals are required to check all applicants for clinical privileges and once every two years for everyone who has clinical privileges. Many hospitals, however, hesitate to submit reports to the data bank, worrying that doing so may hurt doctors' job prospects or even prompt lawsuits. Despite his string of problems at Baylor Plano, Dunch also wasn't reported to the Texas Medical Board, the state's main purveyor of doctor discipline. Such boards often move slowly, but if hospital officials submit material they've gathered to justify letting a doctor go, boards can act to protect patients from imminent harm. Dunch's next stop was Dallas Medical Center, which sits outside Dallas's northern edge in the city of Farmers Branch. Baylor Plano officials might have thought any future employer would contact them before hiring him and they could share information confidentially, but Dallas Medical Center granted Dunch temporary privileges while its reference checks were still going on. On July 24, 2012, Dunch operated on Floella Brown, 64 years old, a banker about to retire after a long career. She had come to Dunch for cervical spine surgery to ease her worsening neck and back and shoulder pain, excuse me. After a half of an hour into Brown surgery, Dunch started to complain that he was having trouble seeing her spine. He was saying, there's so much blood, I can't see, I can't see. And Kyle Kissinger, an operating room nurse said, he kept telling the scrub tech, suck here, suck there, get that blood out of there, I can't see. It's really concerning me because not only that he can't do it correctly, but then he can't see. And no one understands why this person is still bleeding. Brown bled so much, the blood was saturating the draping around the body and dripping onto the floor. The nursing staff put down towels to soak it up. After the operation, Brown woke up and seemed to be fine, but early the next morning, she lost consciousness. Pressure was building inside her brain for reasons that were unclear. The same morning, with Brown still in the ICU, Dunch took another patient into surgery. The patient's name was Mary Ufert. She was an active 71-year-old who sought Dunch's help because back pain was keeping her off her treadmill. Dunch arrived at the hospital about 45 minutes after Ufert's surgery had been set to start. He spotted a hole in Dunch's scrubs. It's on the butt cheek of his scrubs, and he wasn't wearing underwear. That's why it was really, really sticking out to me. The nurse realized he'd seen that hole for three straight days. Dunch had not changed his scrubs all week. That's gross. Who does that? What doctor? Not just doctor, surgeon. Not only what surgeon wears dirty scrubs, which contaminates the operating room, but... The same dirty scrubs all week, contaminating the operating field, but on top of that goes commando, so whatever from underneath is contaminating everything. That's just awful, beyond how disgusting he already is. This just makes it so much worse. Kissinger also noticed that Dunch had pinpoint pupils and hardly seemed to bleed. When Dunch arrived, the staff told him that Brown, his patient from the day before, was in critical condition. Soon 
after beginning Euford's surgery. Dunch turned to Kissinger and told him to let the front desk know he would be performing a procedure on Brown called a craniotomy. Oh, that sounds like it's going to go well. Cutting a hole in her skull to relieve the pressure in her brain. Problem was, Dallas Medical did not perform craniotomies or even have the proper, proper equipment to do so. As he operated on Euford, Dunch quarreled first with Kissinger and later with his supervisors, insisting on a craniotomy for Brown, according to the testimony at court. All the while, the operating room staff questioned whether Dunch was putting hardware in the right places in Euford and noticed he kept drilling and removing screws. In the end, Dunch did not perform a craniotomy on Brown. She was moved to another hospital, but never regained consciousness. In court, her family said they withdrew life support days later. A neurosurgeon hired to review her case would later determine that Dunch had both pierced and blocked her vertebral artery with a misplaced screw. The review also found that Dunch misdiagnosed her source of pain and was operating in the wrong place. The day after her surgery, Euford awoke in agony. She couldn't turn over or wiggle her toes. Hospital administrators called Dr. Robert Henderson, a Dallas spine surgeon, to try and repair the damage. The operation was so botched, Henderson recalled thinking Dunch had to be an imposter passing himself off as a surgeon. Even after Henderson's repairs, Euford never regained her mobility and now uses a wheelchair. By the end of the week, hospital administrators told Dench he would no longer operate at Dallas Medical Center. But as had happened at Baylor Plano, Dunch was allowed to resign and the hospital didn't notify the National Practitioner Data Bank. After Dunch's disastrous run at Dallas Medical Center, he was finally reported to the state medical board. The first report came from Shucklin, a Dallas physician who served on the board, who had been told of the surgeries on Euford and Brown. Other doctors started complaining too. After being called in to help Euford, Henderson too made it his personal mission to stop Dunch from operating. He called Boop, a doctor at the University of Tennessee, to ask about Dunch's training and spoke to officials at Baylor Plano Hospital. He also called the state medical board. It was at the University General Hospital that Jeff Little had decided to have neck surgery, knowing none of Dunch's two-year-long history of botching operations. Glittle's back problems had begun almost a decade earlier in 2004 when he broke his back in two places in a motorcycle accident. After a year of rehab, he tried to go back to his job working on air conditioning systems, but lasted only a few months before pain stopped him. He left his first meeting with Dunch elated and filled with hope. I was actually so happy with the way that it went that I called my wife and my mom said, I think I found somebody on my insurance that's gonna fix my neck. Once at the hospital, Glidwell and his wife waited and waited. Three hours late, Dunch arrived in a cab three hours late. He had on jeans that were torn, Glidwell said. He didn't look like he was there to do surgery. Reluctantly, Glidwell decided to go ahead. But hours later, Dunch came out and told Glidwell's wife that he had found a tumor in Glidwell's neck and aborted the procedure. There was no tumor. 
Dunch made a series of errors after mistaking a portion of Glidwell's neck muscle for a growth, according to the review of the case. The University of General heard about what happened to Glidwell and called Kirby to try and mitigate the damage. I reluctantly went down there and met with the Glidwell family and took care of him. Glidwell was spiking fevers and was transferred to another hospital for care and would remain there for months. This was not an operation that was performed, Kirby said. This was an attempted murder. According to the doctors who reviewed the case, Dunchmiss took part of his neck muscle for a tumor and abandoned the operation midway through after he cut into Glidwell's vocal cords, puncturing an artery, slicing a hole in his esophagus, stuffing a sponge into the wound, and then sewing him back. Who, once again, time again, who does this? Who is like, oh, I messed up. I'm not even going to try and sew back up his esophagus. I'm not even going to try and sew up the artery. I'm just going to throw a sponge in there and sew him back up and then go lie to the family and be like, oh, it was a tumor. I had to stop. Obviously, they are going to go to an oncologist and be like, he has a tumor. You don't think that another doctor is going to find the sponge you sewed back up in the man? Like, this is just insane, ridiculous and just i can't like and shame on you for making me say i can't so glidwell spent four days in intensive care endured months of rehabilitation for the wound to his esophagus to this day he can only eat food in small bites and has nerve damage he still has numbness in his hand and in his arm henderson and kirby were well aware that dunch had moved elsewhere and was still there and could still theoretically get a medical license convinced he was a clear and present danger to the public they urged dallas county district attorney's office to pursue criminal charges the inquiry went nowhere until 2015 when the statute of limitations on any potential charges was about to run out part of the problem was being able to prof to prove dunch's actions were willful and intentional as defined by texas laws after interviewing dozens of Dunch's patients and their survivors, they concluded that Dunch's actions were criminal. They also obtained a 2011 letter in which Dunch boasted about his desire to become a cold-blooded killer. In July 2015, approximately a year and a half after his license was revoked, Dunch was arrested in Dallas and charged with six felony counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, i.e. his hands and surgical tools five counts of aggravated assault causing serious bodily injury, and one count of injury to a child, elderly, or disabled person. The indictments were handed up just four months before the statute of limitations ran out. The last charge was for the maiming and paralyzing of Euphrit. Prosecutors put a high priority on that charge as it proved the widest sentencing range. With Dunch's Dunch facing up to life in prison if convicted, Prosecutors sought a sentence long enough to ensure that Dunst would never be able to practice medicine again. On paper, a conviction on even one of those charges would have effectively ended Dunch's medical career, since most states will not grant a medical license to a convicted felon. After 13 days of trial, the jury needed just four hours to convict him for the maiming of Euphrid, 
And on February 20th, 2017, he was sentenced to life in prison. That was the story of what some people call Dr. Death. Luckily, we do not have to worry about him anymore as he is in life in prison. I'm, I hope you join me again in two weeks when we go over the story of a crime in Hawaii just before it obtained statehood that not only divided the, the island of Hawaii, but it also divided the mainland United States. It showed racism at its worst, classism, and it also made the country very, very much aware of how racism um, applies very much to um, indigenous people and not just um, African-Americans as people thought at that particular time and almost affected um, Hawaii's statehood as it had yet to become a state and affected the military very much as well. So in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing that how and why people do such awful things.